We'll hear argument first this morning in case 08-1119, Milovets, Scallop and Milovets versus the United States and the United States versus Milovets. Mr. Brunstad. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Section 526A4 is unconstitutional because it prescribes truthful information about entirely lawful activity. It whipsaws the attorneys who are trying to apply it, it creates an impossible situation for them, and it harms the client. If it were confined to unlawful activity and narrowly drawn, uh, do you concede that (coughs) such a statute would be constitutional? Perhaps, Justice Kennedy, but the real challenge is to actually do that narrowing well, of you say Congress. Perhaps, yes or no. Can Congress, by an appropriately, appropriately drawn narrow statute, prohibit attorneys from advising A, criminal conduct in reference to a bankruptcy, or B, uh, civil con- uh, conduct that is um, uh, improper under the civil code because it's a fraud on creditors? Yes, Justice Kennedy. If it were narrowly drawn to apply to criminal activity or fraudulent activity, yes. Those terms have well-established meanings. We know how to apply them. This statute, of course, does not do that. Now, the government does not defend the statute as written. The government seeks to rewrite it. But the manner in which the government seeks to rewrite the statute really doesn't work under the statutory terms. We do not have that guidance. The government, in its brief, proposes three different formulations of how it might be narrowed. None of those work. Even if we were to accept any of those formulations, we don't know what abusive conduct means. The government simply would trade a First Amendment problem for a vagueness problem. We but there's, a, there's already in the statute an act, a required attestation from the lawyer who signs a bankruptcy petition uh, that the petition does not constitute an abuse. The, this is 707B. Yes, The Justice words Ginsburg. are something like, does not constitute an abuse. So apparently it has meaning there. Why doesn't we say, well, whatever it means in 707B, it also means in, in 5 whatever it is. Two reasons, Justice Ginsburg. First, the 707B abuse standard um, – is a completely different context. It involves gatekeeping to the access to bankruptcy relief. The second reason is that Congress, there's no indication whatsoever in the legislative history or elsewhere that Congress intended to import the abuse standard under Section 707 into the 526A4 context. Well, again, in the hypothetical conte- context, could Congress enforce by a statute um, what it requires in the attestation clause? No, Justice Kennedy, because the abuse standard is too nebulous to satisfy, I think, scrutiny under the First Amendment. So you think the attestation clause cannot be the basis for sanctioning an attorney? It can be the basis for sanctioning an attorney. I mean, how can that be if it's too vague? Well, I think, Your Honor, that the gateway to the bankruptcy procedures or or basically provisions like Section 707 or in the Chapter 11 context basically are an equitable inquiry that looks into the totality of the circumstances, whether what the lawyer has done or what the debtor has done, uh, and, and really it, it looks to what the debtor has done, is, would be such that would deny access to bankruptcy relief. Has the debtor engaged in an inequitable conduct, in, engaged in inequitable conduct in some way that would basically shut the door to bankruptcy relief? Now, that the attestation clause is designed to ensure that the attorney has performed in an ethical and proper way. I take it. In, in a sense, that's one of its purposes. I, th- I think it goes more towards the attorney checking the information that the debtor has basically provided in the petition and elsewhere to make sure that the information that's provided is accurate and, and that the bankruptcy petition is not being proposed, in essence, for an abusive purpose. Well, I won't take up too much more of your argument, but it just seems to me odd that you can enforce an attestation clause but not a statute that does the same thing. And I, I don't understand the principle for that. You say it's a gateway and it's d- d- designed to facilitate the bankruptcy uh, process. Well, the government could say the same thing about its statute. Except I think, Your Honor, that whereas for the purposes of getting into bankruptcy or staying in bankruptcy um, is one standard that courts apply basically on an equitable basis, that analysis and what Congress did there it didn't have in mind First Amendment concerns. It didn't have in mind trying to narrowly tailor uh, this, the statutory regime so that lawyers basically can understand what they're doing in a way they communicate it to their clients. Well, Congress often forgets about the First Amendment, but lawyers don't. Uh. 
That's true, Your Honor, and that's the heart of the problem here. The problem here is that when Congress basically — first of all, Congress didn't import the 707B standard into 526A. One of, one of the words in 707B, I mean, they're both in the statute. The, what the lawyer has to attest to is required by statute. That, that is true, Justice Ginsburg. But there's no evidence that Congress, in legislative history or otherwise, that Congress intended the 707B standard to be the standard that governs what the lawyer can tell the client under Section 526. But isn't there another problem? Even if Congress didn't think of the problem, don't we have a duty to construe the statute to avoid constitutional problems if there's any reasonable basis for doing so? Yes, Justice Stevens, but this statute is not reasonably susceptible to the government's interpretation. That's an entirely different argument from the fact that Congress didn't think of this problem. That's correct, Justice Stevens. But the problem here is that what the government has tried to do is tease out a standard from the in-contemplation of language in 526A4. And the problem is that — two problems. One, the in-contemplation of language only modifies half the statute. So the or pay the attorney prong is not even addressed by the government's narrowing construction. They kind of ignore that. The second problem is that the in-contemplation of language cannot bear the weight the government would have there. What do you think that means? What do you think in-contemplation of bankruptcy means? I think it means what the Court said it meant in the Pender case, interpreting Section 60D of the former Bankruptcy Act of 1898. And that is whether bankruptcy is likely or imminent. In contemplation of bankruptcy, taking some action where bankruptcy cases is imminent or likely. Now, it appears — So let's say someone goes to a lawyer and they discuss the person's debt situation and the decision is made that a bankruptcy petition is going to be filed at some future date. And you think that everything that that person does after that point is done in contemplation of bankruptcy? Not necessarily, Justice Alito. Then why not? The person drives home in contemplation of bankruptcy. The person has lunch in contemplation of bankruptcy. Well, I think that would — Doesn't it mean in contemplation of bankruptcy means because of the expectation of filing a bankruptcy petition later? I think that that would assume that the filing of the bankruptcy petition looms entirely in the consciousness of the debtor when the debtor does everything. But I do think that the in contemplation of clause, which is also used in Section 329, is a neutral phrase. In contemplation of means nothing more than is the bankruptcy filing likely. It doesn't have any nefarious. It doesn't have any abusive context to it at all. And, for example, Section 329 — Wait. It doesn't mean is it likely. In contemplation of means that the reason you're doing this is the contemplated bankruptcy. You don't see any causal connection in that phrase? I do see a causal connection, but there's no element of doing something improper in the language in contemplation of. Well, that's true. That may be true enough. But the act must be taken because you're about to file a bankruptcy petition. Yes, Justice Scalia, but the government relies and hinges its argument on the abusive connotation of the in contemplation of that doesn't exist. So what the government is trying to do is rewrite the statute by importing meaning into a phrase that has never been there and doesn't exist there. Every time we see the in contemplation of phrase appearing, either under the current law or under a prior law, if there was some element of abuse coupled with it, that was separately stated. And, of course, there is no separate statement here. Now, again, I go back to the fact that this — the practical effect of Section 526A4 is to make an impossible situation for attorneys. We have two regimes, one under applicable normal ethical State bar rules, which say you have to give unfettered, candid advice to your client. This provision, which says you must give truncated advice, there are things you cannot say. But whether you're in one regime or another depends upon whether the debtor is there. Sotomayor, is there a difference between unethical and illegal advice? As an attorney, can you undergive unethical advice? Yes, I think so, Justice Sotomayor. Under the State rules, you can give unethical advice as a lawyer? You cannot. No, that is prescribed by the State rules. So if you are not permitted to do so, what in the First Amendment would otherwise give you that right? I mean, this is a commercial transaction of sorts. It's a fiduciary duty, but it's a commercial transaction. They're coming to you and they're paying you for certain advice. So why would the First Amendment protect your right to give unethical advice? It wouldn't protect your right to give unethical advice. The problem is that this statute sweeps within its scope perfectly truthful advice about lawful activity. We're assuming that it's not read with a limitation with respect to abusive conduct. Correct. So assuming that is read into the statute or 
is viewed as part of in contemplation of bankruptcy. Um, what in the First Amendment would make that big? The First Amendment would not protect unethical advice. The problem, though, is that the term abusive, which the government wants to interlineate into the statute, is itself inherently vague. Unlike but fraudulent you conduct. explained why. Because abusive, it's like seditious utterances. It's not something which a normal person who just looks at it would be able to understand what it means. Now, in You don't understand what it means as a lawyer? I have some ideas about what it means, but because of the onerous sanctions that Section 526C imposes, if I'm wrong, I can be basically subject to a whole panoply of remedies, some very serious remedies and very serious punishments for making a mistake. And that's one of the problems under the First Amendment. What if you leave abusive out? Let's uh, let's accept accept your point that uh, abusive is not there, and the government is reading it in out of nowhere. What's what's the matter with the uh, with the statute then? It I'll give just, you. A- it just prohibits giving advice uh, in contemplation of bankruptcy that somebody incur more debt. What what's unlawful about that? Well, I'll give you I'll give you a perfect example. Suppose the debtor's problem is that he lives in a house that's too expensive for him. He comes to the lawyer. I'm in financial distress. The lawyer suggests. Well, lawyer would, would logically suggest, why don't you sell your house and rent an apartment? But the signing of the lease is incurring debt, the lease obligation. But that's, that's not in contemplation of bankruptcy. It would be, Justice Scalia, if the debtor comes to you in financial distress, is thinking about filing for bankruptcy and wants the advice in that context. If, if the only you. reason the lawyer gives the advice is because he knows that this uh, — that this debtor is planning to file bankruptcy. It says, if you're going to file bankruptcy, you better sell the house and move to an apartment. Then it's no good. Now, it may be a stupid law, but I don't see why it's, uh, why it's uh, unconstitutional. Because it's perfectly legitimate advice about perfectly lawful activity. So it's a stupid law. Well, what happens is that basically it interferes with the lawyer's ability through right. speech to communicate Full and candid advice. Exactly. And that's why it's a stupid law. And now, also where, under- where is the prohibition of stupid laws in, in, in the Constitution? Justice Scalia, I think the problem here is that this stupid law does not pass either strict scrutiny, and it is substantially overbroad. How, how much of your case depends upon the difficulty of defining what, if you accept the idea that in contemplation of means uh, uh, abusive or fraudulent. How much of your case depends upon the proposition that it's just hard to tell? That it, it's it, a multi-factor inquiry and that the lawyer sort of has to stop and think at every turn. Well, could this be construed as recommending abuse or is this just construed as telling clients what they can and can't do? And in some areas it's a gray area and what should you do when it's a gray area? Is Is that... Does your case depend upon that, which is, I guess, just an issue with the limiting construction proposed by the Solicitor General? It doesn't turn on that, but that demonstrates the chilling effect. The effect of the statute has been to drive conscientious bankruptcy counsel from the practice. Why? Because it's not just difficult to apply, it's often impossible to apply. The whole statute turns on whether the debtor, the client or prospective client, is an assisted person, which depends on the relative wealth of the client, which is something that's very, very difficult to determine at any particular given point in time. So the lawyer doesn't know, am I restricted in my speech under 526A4 because that applies, or does 526A4 not not apply at all because I'm not dealing with an assisted person such that I'm under normal state bar rules, which requires me to give unfettered advice. And since that's impossible to know without detailed, careful um, analysis of the relative wealth of the client, the statute is basically impossible to apply. Well, if we assume a proper limit in construction, I I know you disagree with that, but if we assume that we can limit the statute properly so that it applies just to unethical conduct, then you can't give that advice to anybody. And the fact that assisted persons is a subclass of that is irrelevant. That would be true, Justice Kennedy, if, in fact, we could tease out from the abusive conduct, if people could actually understand what abusive meant. Does that prescribe — what does it prescribe? It's yes, but that doesn't go to your other point, that uh, there's a, a, a problem in determining the class of persons. If, if it's unethical, uh, you can't give it to anybody. And the fact that the class of persons is difficult to understand is, is, is irrelevant. 
Yes, Justice Kennedy, but that assumes that we can do the narrowing construction, I think, as Your Honor points out. And that, again, is a fundamental problem because the standard the government would like to impose or interlineate in the statute is entirely vague. Now, you want to, I mean, your first point is we never get to that question because lawyers shouldn't be under this Act at all. They shouldn't be labeled debt relief agencies. Yes, Justice Ginsburg. Our point um, on the statutory construction piece is that the statute is ambiguous and that to avoid the constitutional questions, actually avoid two constitutional questions here, a constitutional question under 526A4 and then a separate constitutional question under 528A4 and B2B. It's only lawyers who are protected against vague uh, uh, criminal statutes? Certainly not, Justice. I mean, it's perfectly okay for the rest of the world to have to uh, uh, cope with this uh, vagueness. But once you take lawyers out of it, it's okay. Certainly not, Justice Scalia. Which so, then, I, so then there's no reason particular to take lawyers out of it, just, just to make it uh, constitutional. Well, our argument there, Justice Scalia, is that the statute does not unambiguously embrace attorneys. Attorney is not mentioned in the definition of debt relief agency in 101.12a, where you would think it would be, because wherever Congress has otherwise intended to regulate attorneys in connection with bankruptcy practice, it has used the word attorney specifically. That's fine. If, if, you're, if you're letting that argument stand on its own, that, that's a fine argument. But don't uh, don't bring in the fact that well, and moreover, if it's applied to attorneys, it's unconstitutional. Because if it's applied to anybody, it's unconstitutional, according to your argument. That is also true, Justice Scalia, because we do make a, a substantial overbreadth argument. That's well, when you say you say it isn't referred to, it seems to me to be referred to. It says the term debt relief agency means any person who provides any bankruptcy assistance to an assisted person. And the term bankruptcy assistance is defined to include appearing in a case or proceeding on behalf of another or providing legal representation with respect to a case or proceeding. Doesn't a lawyer provide legal representation? A lawyer does, Justice All right, Breyer. so doesn't the term provide legal representation include a lawyer? The problem, uh, Justice Breyer, is that I think you, when Your Honor was quoting from Section 101.4a, your Honor took out a whole lot of information that goes between the word bankruptcy assistance and yes. legal representation. Yes, they include other people besides lawyers. Not only that, but I think that that language is inherently ambiguous. What is what Congress getting at there? If Congress I don't know. What is it getting at with providing legal representation with respect to a case? That would seem to be with yeah, respect would to, lawyers, to be a lawyer. But it's precluded, it's preceded by language any goods or services sold or otherwise provided to an assisted person yeah. for the express or implied purpose of providing information, et cetera, yeah. about legal representation. Those are other people who are covered. Well, not just other people, but what it looks like is it looks like what Congress was getting at was people who provide things like what attorneys provide. Now, there are a whole host of problems with including attorney within the definition of debt relief agency. I mean, it's counter, counter contrary to the purpose of what Congress seemed to be getting at. It leads to anomalous results. How is it any different from including lawyers within the category debt collectors, which lawyers objected to in this Court unsuccessfully? Yes, Justice Ginsburg. But there it was interesting. There, there, in in the Heinz case, that was a situation where Lawyers had been expressly excluded from the statutory regime. Then Congress repealed the exclusion. So a clear signal to include attorneys. Here we have the opposite. We have a very ambiguous legislative history where in the initial version of this legislation, the House report accompanying it said lawyers were included, and the language was debt relief counseling agency. Then Congress amended the statute, uh, Congress amended the proposed legislation in 1999, and thereafter in the 2001, 2003, and 2005 House reports deleted all reference to attorneys, a very, very strange uh, tale which seems to signal exactly the opposite of the Heinz case. So we have a very ambiguous legislative history that seems to give us a contrary signal. That, in part, is part of the ambiguity behind this statute, which I think is one of the reasons why it's perfectly, this statute is readily susceptible to an interpretation. I thought that in, in legislative history there were examples of lawyers overreaching, that the, that the conduct that Congress was aiming at was engaged in by lawyers as well as others. There are some references in legislative history to that, Justice Ginsburg. There are a few scattered references in legislative history. But, again, the legislative history is very ambiguous. It seems to go in lots of different directions. Now, recall, Justice Ginsburg. I've heard of referring to legislative history when the statute is ambiguous. I haven't 
refer to referring to the legislative history to make the statute ambiguous. Yes, Justice Kennedy. I think the statute is ambiguous for a whole host of reasons, and the legislative history does not clear up the ambiguity. It actually deepens it. So the legislative history reinforces the other indicators, the textual indicators of, in fact, ambiguity here. But I think, I think it's also important to underscore not only would the constitutional avoidance uh, application of that canon here by excluding attorneys from debt relief agencies solve the problem under Section 526A4, but also under Section 528A4 and B2B. 528. Before you go on on 528, could you clarify for me what is your challenge to 528? Is it a 528? Norm- 528. Yes, Justice Sotomayor. Is it a normal facial Invalidity? Is it an overbreath invalidity? Is it an as applied challenge? What exactly are you claiming with respect to that? Does your honor mean 526 or 528? 528. 528. 528, the disclosures in the advertising provision? Yes. We are challenging that um, on as applied. It violates the Constitution. Can you tell me how you have an as applied challenge when I don't even know what ad is at issue? Yes, Your Honor. I think this is the same as the, the Cincinnati case, uh, where, in fact, there was no allegation that the handbills that were being distributed were in any way deceptive or misleading. That's the same situation here. The district but I, court — I, I, I've scoured the record for a handbill, meaning for an advertisement yes. by you that I could look at and say, on it, you know, I'm looking at it and it's not — Misleading. So where is it in the, the record? The, ad, the ads are not in the record. But as the district court found, there is no evidence suggesting that bankruptcy assistance advertisements, that petitioners' bankruptcy assistance advertisements, are deceptive in any regard. The government never alleged that petitioners engage in any deceptive advertising. That's I, I'm, I'm, I truly have never heard of an as-applied challenge when we don't know what it's being applied to, but putting that aside. It, so you have an as-applied challenge. Do you have a facial challenge or an overbreath challenge? With respect to the advertisements with the commercial speech? Yes, the 528. No, no it's, not a, it's not a facial challenge. It's an as-applied as challenge. But, but he, here's, here's the point uh, on the evidentiary point. The government never sought to introduce that evidence because it's not at issue. There's no dispute that petitioner's advertisement is not — is, Did the government bring this lawsuit below? We brought this lawsuit as a declaratory so judgment action. What? Were they supposed to scour your advertisements to find a violation? Was that it? No, unless there was an allegation that in some way petitioners' advertisements were misleading. It's not. It's not a disputed question. It's not a disputed factual question. There's no dispute, and the district court basically found that there's no allegation that petitioners' advertising is deceptive or untruthful in any way. So petitioners' advertising is not of the kind that Congress was trying to target. Now, the problem and the burden that 528 imposes is that it requires counterfactual misleading statements that interfere with legitimate advertising messages. That's the problem. The statute is not narrowly tailored under Central Hudson to address the make debts disappear problem the government identifies as animating this particular statute. Let me give a simple illustration to sort of illustrate my point. Suppose, suppose I sell bread and the government required me to say, disclose, I am a bread supply agency. I sell products that contain wheat. Well, what if the bread I sell does not contain wheat? It's wheat-free. Forcing me to make that statement is counterfactual and misleading. That's what this statute does. If I also sell milk, it requires me to make the statement, I am a bread relief, a bread, bread supply agency. Could I ask you something? When you're an attorney, advertising as an attorney who gives advice on um, bankruptcy, why aren't you a death release relief advisor? The problem, Justice Sotomayor, is that that statement inherently is misleading. When, lawyer, when clients look for lawyers, bankruptcy lawyers, or just lawyers in general, they don't want to see someone called a debt relief agency. It conveys no meaningful information. In fact, it's misleading. They don't want to be — lawyers don't want to be called debt collectors either. And in this uh, — the Fair Debt Collection Act, it says that — the, communi- the communication must say the communication is from a debt collector, except that formal pleadings are not — you don't have to identify it. But it seems to me that that, that would be a harder thing for a lawyer to do, to en- identify herself in an advertisement as I am a debt collector than I am a debt relief agency. Yes, but — 
the debt collection statute doesn't require that in advertising. It requires that in letters and things like that that go to other parties where you're actually trying to help collect the debt. So it's a communication that the lawyer is making, for example, and a disclosure that's required. Here, putting in your advertising, I am a debt collection agency, conveys no meaningful information to the public. In fact, it is misleading. Well, a, a, I suppose you don't have to advertise, or B, if you do, you can say in your bread hypo, under the federal law, we have bread, but our bread is, I don't know, gluten-free or whatever. You can use Yes, Justice Kennedy. You can always add, add in order to make it non-misleading. But that would require a statement in our advertising that is actually to make it fundamentally dissimilar to the statement that's being actually imposed on us. We have to say, we have to put in the advertising something like, this product contains wheat. Then we also have to say, but my product doesn't. So for the consumer who's looking at the information, it's inherently misleading because it's a proposal for a commercial transaction, right? You're trying to get a consumer to hire you. And the First Amendment standards for, for proposals for commercial transactions have always been more, more lenient than uh, other First Amendment contexts. We, we, we regulate uh, the content of advertising all the time. Yes, Justice Scalia, but this statute is odd because it requires counterfactual information. It's not narrowly drawn to address the problem the government identifies. If a, I don't if a know law firm, if a law firm provides uh, representation for debtors in bankruptcy, what is misleading about requiring them to say we help people file for bankruptcy relief under the bankruptcy code? Because the scope of Section 528B2B is so broad. If I am advertising mortgage uh, foreclosure services having nothing to do with bankruptcy, I still must make this counterfactual statement. 528, uh, for example, in my bread hypothetical, if I'm also selling milk, and the government says when I'm selling milk through my milk advertising, I have to say, I'm a bread supply agency, I sell products that contain wheat. Um, That's completely misleading and irrelevant to the milk advertisement, but this statute does the same thing. If I'm advertising eviction protection services having nothing to do with bankruptcy or mortgage foreclosure services representation having nothing to do with bankruptcy, I have to make these counterfactual statements that are inherently misleading. If there are no uh, questions at the moment, I'd like to reserve my time. Thank you, Mr. Brunstad. Mr. Jay. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I'd like to begin with the threshold statutory question, if I may. I have only a few points on that. A debt relief agency is any person who provides specified services to specified clients for pay. An attorney is a person, a defined term under the Bankruptcy Code, and the petitioners have affirmatively alleged in their complaint that they provide bankruptcy assistance to assisted persons. We think that's all that's required to determine that they are debt relief agencies under the statute. What about the provision that says um, if you, uh, directors, employees are not included? Uh, as I understand Petitioner's argument about that provision, it is that Congress would surely have made an exception for partners as well had it intended to include attorneys. Uh, and we think that that's a multi-step chain of reasoning that breaks down at each step. Uh, Congress made an exception from the definition of debt relief agencies for officers and employees of the business that is itself a debt relief agency. Uh, Partnerships, of course, have employees as well, and a uh, run-of-the-mill employee of a partnership who doesn't provide the the bankruptcy assistance services himself is not himself a debt relief agency. What about an associate? I think, Justice Ginsburg, an associate is an employee. So if the associate uh, in a law firm provides uh, doesn't provide the bankruptcy assistance herself, then she is not a debt relief agency. It's the — because any person is defined under the bankruptcy code to include individual partnership or corporation, that's Section 10141, uh, it's the, the law firm that provides the services is a p- person that provides the services and therefore a debt relief agency. I suppose an, an individual who provides the services himself or herself might be an agency, a debt relief agency as well. But we don't think that the absence of a specific exception for partners of a partnership uh, uh, tells us anything uh, that would derogate from the plain meaning of the defined terms in the statute. Uh, the fact that partners are liable for actions of the partnership is a, uh, a commonplace of partnership law. Uh, and uh, it's also not the case that all attorneys practice in partnerships. The petitioner law firm is a professional corporation, and one of the individual petitioners is a director of that, uh, of that professional corporation. Woody, what I think his argument is, as I understand it, is if you look at the definition of bankruptcy assistance, 
you'll see there are seven different things that a person could do and fall within that definition. And all of those seven things are probably provided by the kinds of agencies you see advertised on television, which say we'll help you with your debts. And they probably aren't lawyers. And so if you look at the six of the seven things, it's clear that all of those are provided by those television companies. And the seventh is simply added in, namely the providing legal representation, to be a catch-all to be sure that if one of those companies actually does something that is legal representation, even though they're not lawyers, they're caught too. So he's saying read the whole paragraph, and then you will see they're after the companies that appear on television, and they're not after lawyers. And then he says that's the history of the bill and so forth and so on. Okay. Now, that's the argument, and so it isn't, can't quite be brushed off as quickly, I think, as you did. Well, I'm happy to respond to it in further detail. I think that the uh, first, the reference to appearing in a case or proceeding on behalf of another, that can only refer to lawyers, the, even if, as you Why? Posit- I mean, there could not only be lawyers. I mean, there are numerous proceedings where your brother, your mother, your cousin, your friend appears for you. They say, bring a friend. Br- bring one of us. Uh, we will charge you very little. We'll save you money. And I am a lawyer, by the way, but I mean, <laughs> that's right, Justice Breyer. And I think I think I have relatives who aren't, and you can bring one of them. But appearing appearing in a case or proceeding under this title, Your Honor, means entering an appearance in court. And I think that's the, that's the natural reading of that phrase. And uh, petitioners have suggested that this is an uh, attempt to catch the unauthorized practice of law, but they, certainly neither the plain meaning nor the legislative record suggests that people who are not lawyers were actually engaging in conduct so brazen as to show up in federal bankruptcy court, enter, file a notice of appearance, and purport to be a lawyer. That's not what this statute uh, is intended to catch. At any rate, the legislative history, I think, amply supports our view. Uh, page 21 of our brief collects uh, a number of citations to the legislative record, re- specifically referring to attorneys. As for the point Mr. Brunstad made about the change in the drafting history of this bill from debt relief count- counseling agency to debt relief agency, that change was made in 1999, and in the House report accompanying the 1999 version of the bill, which had changed from debt relief counseling agency to debt relief agency, the, the House report said it applies to attorneys as well as to non-attorneys, such as petition preparers. That's page 120 of House Report 106-123. So I, th- I think that amply refutes uh, the point about the drafting history. But in any event, if the Court were to look at legislative history, we think that the uh, provisions of the 2005 House report accompanying the bill that actually was enacted are the most probative, and we've cited two references on page 21 of our brief that we think amply demonstrate that attorneys are included. If the Court has no further questions about well, so the if, de- if if lawyers are debt relief agencies, I'm curious how your limiting construction works. Uh, if a client comes into a lawyer and says, look, I know we're thinking of filing bankruptcy, uh, but I want to go to Tahiti and charge it, can I do it? And the lawyer says, oh, the law says I can't give you advice in contemplation of bankruptcy. The Solicitor General says that means I can't give you advice in aid of fraud that would deprive debtors of assets they might otherwise get. So I can't tell you. Well, has that person violated the, the, the — has that lawyer violated the statute? I don't think so, Your Honor. The statute prohibits only advice to incur more debt in contemplation of bankruptcy. Well, the person's asked, can I charge the trip to Tahiti? And the lawyer, although giving perfectly truthful advice, has ineffectively conveyed to his client that if he does, he would be depriving debtors of assets they might otherwise get. But the lawyer in your hypothetical, Mr. Chief Justice, has not advised the client to take the trip. It has not advised the client to do that. Uh, He's communicated to the client that if he takes the trip, one, he'll have a good time in Tahiti, and two, he will be using assets that would otherwise end up in the hands of the debtors. I I, I suppose that, you know, there might be a fact question about whether a particular wink and nod communication between an attorney and client were, in fact, advice to uh, engage in the transaction that, uh, that's prohibited under the bankruptcy code, the fraudulent or abusive transaction. What if, what if the lawyer said, I can't give you advice in contemplation of bankruptcy, but here's the Solicitor General's brief. Read that. And a reasonable — my point is a reasonable person reading the brief would say, 
well, the reason he can't give me advice is because that might cause me to do something that would uh, defraud the debtors. So I'm going to buy the ticket. Well, if, if that debtor reads our brief, that debtor will also see that there are serious consequences for the debtor himself, which is precisely why, pa- uh, why Congress passed this statute providing for relief for the debtor against the attorney who provides this unethical or abusive advice. An attorney, uh, sorry, a, a client who incurs additional debt intending to defraud the creditor uh, is, uh, may not be able to obtain a discharge of that debt and indeed may not be able to obtain Well, a that's one of the things I'm concerned about your limiting construction, intending to defraud the debtor. What if the person takes a trip to Tahiti every November? They've always done it. They're not intending to defraud the debtor. They're just doing what they've always done. So an attorney that gives that advice would be — that would be okay? Well, Mr. Chief Justice, I think the Culver case, uh, a a disciplinary case that we refer to in our briefs, is a good illustration of this. Uh, Fraud turns on the uh, defrauder's intent. As a, uh, as a general matter, uh, but, and when someone so if so if the lawyer said that, uh, I can't give you advice in contemplation of bankruptcy, but I can tell you that fraud turns on the debtor's intent. Well, I, I, again, Mr. Chief Justice, I, I don't think that that would be advice to incur the additional debt, and I don't think that the uh, that a debtor who read our brief or in, uh, or who informed himself. You know, uh, with these hints that you're positing the attorney giving, I don't think that the debtor would take the step of, inc- of incurring the additional debt precisely because there are consequences for the debtor, and it's, uh, it's a grave risk. That's precisely but, why if, Congress prohi- prohibited this. No, but the whole point is that the attorney could be providing advice that would steer the debtor away from doing anything wrong. And yet you, the other uh, — the government would say, oh, no, no, you're trying to, to tell him it's okay to take the trip to Tahiti. If he says you can take the trip to Tahiti so long as your intent is not to defraud the debtor, correct advice that could be read as telling the debtor not to do anything wrong or could be read as giving the debtor a little, as you say, a wink and a nod and saying, you know, what do you intend to do? And he says, oh, I just intend to go on vacation, not to defraud the debtors. I think, Your Honor, subject to some kind of in situations of willful blindness, uh, that the attorney in that situation would not be read by any fact finder to have advised the, uh, to advise her client to incur additional debt in contemplation of bankruptcy. And uh, it is it is that that is the statutory touch. Well, let's take some of the examples that were in the uh, amicus brief. Um, one of them was the debtor is just told by her doctor that she has a, a serious cancer that needs operation and radiation, uh, and she is at the end of the line on resources. She has her trade tools, which she could sell to get some money, but then she won't be able to carry on her business. Um, and she could also borrow money, but incurring that debt, since she's on the brink of bankruptcy, she's incurring the debt knowing that she's on the brink of bankruptcy. Could the lawyer say, you don't have to sell your — the lawyer could say, sell your equipment. That wouldn't be a problem. But could the lawyer say, incur the debt? I think the lawyer, under a number of circumstances, could say, I uh, incur the debt. Uh, precisely. But it will take this circumstance. There's no, no, no other person is on the brink of bankruptcy, has no resources, can get money by selling assets or by borrowing. Well, f- uh, if I may, Justice Ginsburg, uh, the hypothetical doesn't state how she's going to borrow the money. So, for example, if she has an open home equity line of credit and she borrows against that home equity line of credit, it's a, secu- uh, it's a secured loan uh, that's not going to be discharged in the Chapter 7 proceeding. Uh, I think that uh, that that's unobjectable under under our reading of the statute. It's not it's not abusive because it, uh, it's not an abuse of the. Suppose she doesn't have a home equity loan. Suppose she's a renter. Well, uh, the two the two scenarios that our 
view, that in our view, are covered by the statute are taking on debt in, uh, in an attempt to abuse the bankruptcy system or to defraud the creditor. And even even someone without uh, uh, without a home equity loan, uh, a home equity line of credit, uh, can take on additional debt without intending to defraud the creditor simply by uh, by intending to repay it. And that's illustrated in the Culver case, in which the attorney had advised the client. Uh, to take on additional debt. To, indeed, uh, he gave her a credit card application and said, get some more cash advances. And she said, I don't want to take on this additional debt. And he said, don't worry, I'll represent you in bankruptcy. You won't have to repay a penny of it. And the, and the Court of Appeals of Maryland explained that that was unethical advice under the uh, Rule 1.2D, the model rule that applies in just about every jurisdiction. Yeah, you uh, can precisely. come up with your own hypotheticals that are a lot easier from your point of view. And Justice Ginsburg has been suggesting some that are much more difficult because they depend on the particular facts. And under your construction, it seems to me that a lawyer trying to give correct legal ethical advice has got to pause before every sentence and think, oh, is this going to be construed in violation of uh, subsection A4? I don't think so, Mr. Chief Justice, and I'm certainly not attempting to fight Justice Ginsburg's hypothetical. I'm attempting to illustrate that uh, that the aspect of the statute that pro, uh, prohibits advice to defraud creditors, uh, you know, will, will turn on, uh, among other things, whether there's any intent to repay the debt. The well, isn't, it, indicate, isn't yes. something in contemplation of bankruptcy uh, done only — isn't something done in, in contemplation of bankruptcy only if it is done because of the anticipation of filing a bankruptcy petition? So that if, if a person takes on additional debt in order to obtain life-saving treatment. That's not done in contemplation of bankruptcy. It's not done because of the bankruptcy. It's done because there's a, an emergency that requires immediate expenditures. I think that that's right, Justice Alito, that, that in that hypothetical, there is no uh, — the mere, the mere fact that the bankruptcy may, uh, may be looming, uh, even in the hypothetical, it's not the animating cause. And the if, Court has if, — If indeed in contemplation of bankruptcy means, as, as you argue, that it has to be for the purpose of abusing the bankruptcy code, right? If that's true, then aren't all these vagueness arguments uh, irrelevant? Because it would be illegal anyway, wouldn't it? Well, so even without this statute, the lawyer would have to worry about, about whether he's doing something that is unlawful. The two prongs of our, of our reading of the statute, that's right, Justice Scalia, are to abuse the bankruptcy code or to, def or to defraud creditors. The well, but the point is you don't know. Of course you can't give advice to do something illegal. But I, I would think that some of the questions have been suggesting that it's hard to know whether it's illegal. You yourself says it depends on the debtor's intent. So if a client came into me and said, can I do this, and it depends on his intent, as a lawyer I would want to say it depends why you're doing it. But if — but that, I think, think, could be construed as being uh, uh, giving advice in contemplation of bankruptcy. But precisely because, Mr. Chief Justice, uh, the de definition of fraud turns on the de uh, defendant or the uh, fraudulent actor's intent, uh, that's true uh, un under present law, under Rule 1.2D, which uh, pro prohibits all attorneys from counseling their clients to commit fraudulent acts. The lawyer runs at risk anyway, whether this statute uh, applies or not. He has to he has to decide whether, in fact, what he's doing is a fraud on creditors or an abuse of the bankruptcy code. And as Justice Ginsburg pointed out uh, in Mr. Brunstad's argument, uh, that's something that the attorney already must be familiar with under Section 707B and must certify in filing any Chapter 7 bankruptcy that uh, in the after the attorney's professional investigation that the granting of relief would not be an abuse of the provisions of the bankruptcy code. And, uh, attorneys are are making that certification every day. When they this is a, a regulation of the attorney-client relationship to pursue an unrelated substantive objective. You want to ensure that debtors don't do something. And you think, well, the way — it's not enough to tell debtors, don't do this. You're going to say, we're going to regulate what lawyers tell them as a way of pursuing an unrelated objective. I don't think it's unrelated, Mr. Chief Justice. The objective is, in many in some instances, criminal, and in other instances, it's prohibited by the bankruptcy code. Uh, and the reason that well, that the objective is criminal, that doesn't mean it's not being indirectly enforced by interfering with the attorney-client relationship. Well, it's certainly affecting the attorney-client relationship. It is certainly true, Mr. Chief Justice, that the attorney is the sophisticated player here. It's the attorney who is the repeat player, and it's the attorney uh, who, uh, by being made subject to this statute, uh, is. Uh, it's, yeah, it's a good way to enforce it, to tell people you can't get legal advice about it. 
What, what if a, a state thinks that there are too many uh, punitive damage awards, that they're out of control, and so it passes a law saying lawyers may not tell their clients that they can get — they can seek punitive damages? Well, Mr. Chief Justice, seeking punitive damages is not illegal. Oh, if it's, done, if it's done with the purpose of fraud, it is. If you think, well, I'm really, I really, well, it really wasn't malicious conduct, I know that, or whatever the standard is for punitive damages, uh, then it's illegal, just like here. If you incur debt uh, to defraud your debtors, it's illegal, but if you don't, it's not. Well, I think that the, the restriction that you're positing is that advice ever to seek punitive damages is, go, uh, is going to Oh, no, no, only if it's, you know, it says you can't give that advice in contemplation of filing a lawsuit. Well, you know, that would, of course, would be outside the bankruptcy context, and we're relying in part here on both on the avoidance doctrine and on the meaning that in contemplation of bankruptcy has had for a long time. But, but in, to answer your question, I think that if there is actually a tie between so, — so that sounds exactly to me like the, uh, a prohibition saying to the lawyer, don't file complaints for punitive damages that aren't supported uh, just uh, under the normal Rule 11 standard. And I don't think that that is an impermissible attempt uh, to, uh, no, no, no. It's a difference between filing, because there the lawyer signs the, signs the complaint. It's giving advice to the client. Um, and and the, I, I guess what I would see as the parallel is that it's an, an objective outside the attorney-client relationship. It's not like saying you can't charge more than 50 percent contingent fee or, or whatever, you know, designed to, to regulate the client, protect the client. It's, it's a totally extraneous objective. Well, here I don't think it. Uh, I don't think it's it's an extraneous objective. It, uh, perhaps I'm misunderstanding how how you, the court means uh, extraneous. The uh, here the advice is the motivating cause in uh, some of these instances of the of the debtor taking the step that's going to lead to actual harm to the debtor. That's why Congress provided that the remedy for a violation of this is either an injunctive action by a government official, the U.S. trustee, or or by the court or a state attorney general, uh, or actual damages paid to the debtor who has suffered. Harm from the unethical or abusive advice given to him or her by the attorney, uh, and so I think that saying that it, that it's extraneous to the attorney-client relationship, I think that's not the statute that uh, that Congress enacted here. Uh, it enacted a statute that protects the client from improper, unethical, abusive, or even criminal, criminally fraudulent advice by the attorney. One thing that lawyers who render services for money want to, is to be sure that they will get paid. And one part of this provision, this 526A4, talks about uh, incurring debt to pay an attorney for representing the debtor. So what can a lawyer say safely about the lawyers getting paid? Well, I'd like to note, uh, if I may, Justice Ginsburg, that we don't think that that is properly part of this challenge. I'll be happy, I will be happy to answer the question, but the Court of Appeals struck down this statute, and it said nine times that it was talking about the portion of the statute about referring to in contemplation of bankruptcy. And the to-pay-an-attorney provision was not addressed in the uh, petitioner's brief in the Court of Appeals or in their brief in opposition to our cert petition. So we don't, we don't think it's properly here. Uh, it hasn't been addressed. But to, uh, to answer your question, the statute says not uh, — and this part of the statute is on page 5A of the appendix to our brief, to advise an assisted person to incur more debt to pay an attorney or bankruptcy petition preparer. So advising the client, you know, that the client ought to pay the fee, you know, here's my bill, my fee is due on date X, that simply doesn't come within the terms of the statute. It's only to incur more debt to pay the attorney. And the situation we think Congress is getting at is the circumstance where the attorney wants to be paid up front. Again, like in the Culver case, the attorney wants his client to take out a cash advance from the credit card company knowing and to give that money to the attorney to pay his fee, uh, precisely because the debt's going to be uh, — the unsecured debt to the credit card company is going to be discharged that's, in bankruptcy. That's the clear case. How about person comes in, shows the attorney his or her financial state. There's no money to pay the fee. The attorney simply gives a bill and says, I need it by Friday. No self-respecting person would believe that the individual is going to pay that bill without borrowing money from somewhere. If you've looked at their financial statement and there's no money to be had, would the attorney have violated the statute there? I don't think so, Justice Sotomayor, uh, uh, precisely because uh, the, attorney, the attorney still hasn't 
issued the advice to incur more debt. I mean, uh, the, the client, of course, also has the opportunity of not, uh, or the option of not paying the fee and, all, and carrying it uh, carrying it forward into bankruptcy. So, uh, but in any event, we don't think that that provision uh, can can be the basis for a holding that th that the other provision about in contemplation of bankruptcy is substantially overbroad, which is what the Court of Appeals held here. Uh, if I may, I, unless the Court has further questions about uh, Section 5. Just one. So basically your bottom line is any advice to incur debt to pay an attorney is illegal. To incur more debt to pay an attorney, uh, I think — uh, I think that that is the import of the statute, uh, and that's because uh, Congress recognized that there's an incentive uh, for attorneys to put pressure on their clients to, fa to favor the attorney as creditor, you know, uh, to essentially treat the attorney as a, uh, a creditor in a better position I, I, than other creditors. Perhaps I'm being not quite understanding you. What, you're underscoring the more debt. That is — going to always be additional if the advice is to incur it. So what meaning are you giving to more that I'm missing? Well, in, in some of the examples that have uh, come up in the briefing in this case, you know, a refinancing transaction, for example, uh, you know, or uh, a sale of, the, sale of the house and replacing it with a rental, uh, we don't think that that's more debt. I, I don't know how this works, but I, I, exactly. I'm not an expert. But I thought that when someone goes bankrupt, that one of the things you ask the bankruptcy judge for is permission to pay for ongoing expenses, and that would include an attorney's fee. Otherwise, people could never be represented. It's true that, that the court can authorize. Well, so why is there some incentive here? All the attorney has to do is follow ordinary procedure. Precisely because, Justice Breyer, different standards apply to, the, to payments made to the attorney before the bankruptcy commences and payments made to the attorney after the bankruptcy commences. It's a, uh, the standard of scrutiny after the bankruptcy commences is a, is a bit more searching under Section 330. Uh, if the Court has no further questions on Section 526, I do want to address Section 528, uh, the, uh, the advertising disclosure requirements. Uh, and there we think that uh, — as Justice Sotomayor uh, brought out in her exchange with, with Mr. Brunstad, uh, there is no evidence in this case uh, pertaining to the particular advertisements that petitioners want to run. They simply say, at pages 38 and 39 of the Joint Appendix, that they have advertised and they wish to continue to advertise. There's no allegation about their content. And they sought and were granted summary judgment in the district court uh, on the theory that this statute is unconstitutional. Uh, and so to the extent that it's anything other than a facial challenge, it's an as-applied challenge as applied essentially to any attorney uh, or indeed anyone who wants to run these advertisements. We think that, as I understand the gravamen of petitioner's argument, it's that the two-sentence suggested text is incorrect, that it's, mis that it's misleading because it's wrong. And the basis for that is saying that some people who are debt relief agencies don't help people file for bankruptcy relief under the bankruptcy code. That is not correct. But isn't it misleading for an attorney to say, I'm a bankrupt, I'm a debt relief agency? Nobody is going to know what a debt relief agency is unless they're familiar with this statute. Well, if a, a prospective client looks at that and they say, well, I don't want a debt relief agency. I want a lawyer. It's well, misleading. Four points on that, Justice Alito. First, the advertisement can, and indeed I'm sure always will, say that the, that the advertiser is a lawyer. Nothing forbids the, uh, the advertisement from saying that. Uh, there's no restriction on what content goes in the ad, only that it include this disclaimer. Second, the, uh, the term debt relief agency is a new one. It was, uh, it was coined by Congress in 2005 precisely because it includes, it includes attorneys, it includes bankruptcy petition preparers. They had to, you know, uh, they had to come up with an amalgamated term that includes them both. The fact that it's a new term, it came freighted with no, per, no preceding, no baggage from its preceding history. Uh, and indeed, if the statute were on the books and, and allowed to take effect, uh, once this challenge is, is disposed of, I'm confident that, that the meaning, uh, would become much more well accepted. Uh, and the petitioners have invited the court, uh, and this is on page 87 of their opening brief, to look at their website. And, of course, that's outside the record. But to the extent that the court looks at it, the court will see that petitioners refer to their bankruptcy practice as providing debt relief. We think that's a natural uh, way of, under, of uh, pitching what the services uh, made available by a bankruptcy attorney are, relief from one's debts. So uh, we don't think that there's anything wrong with that term. But I do want to turn back to why it's not correct to say that and a, a debt relief agency 
uh, would ever not, re- not help people file for bankruptcy relief under the bankruptcy code. That is because, as I understand Petitioner's argument, it's that an assisted person might be a creditor. That's not correct. The definition of assisted person turns on having non-exempt property in excess of a certain amount. Under Section 522L of the Bankruptcy Code, uh, and indeed under this Court's decision in Owen versus Owen, there is no exempt property until there is a filing for bankruptcy and, assem- and an assembly of the bankruptcy estate and a filing by the debtor of ske- or someone on the debtor's behalf filing schedules that specify what property the debtor has and which exemptions the debtor chooses to claim. Well, uh, that's only done when there is a debtor. And so, uh, creditors don't do that. Creditors don't have non-exempt property. We don't think a creditor can be an assisted person. How, how about a law firm that represents the biggest companies in the world? And so they're never going to consciously, intentionally, um, seek out or represent a person defined with the financial limitations of this category. But it so happens that one of their very rich clients comes in and says, I have a small, my brother-in-law is running a small business, help him or her. Is that firm in violation now because their advertisements did not include what 528A required? Well, first, Justice Sotomayor, if, for example, they do it pro bono, uh, then it wouldn't then it wouldn't trigger the definition at all. But, but assuming that the brother-in-law pays for the services, uh, then yeah, I mean, yes. So then they have to for this one brother-in-law they have to amend. They are now violated the statute ex post facto. Not, not ex post facto, Justice Sotomayor. They would become a debt relief agency, and thereafter advertisements directed to the public. Uh, that advertise the specific services. And if they don't have a bankruptcy practice at all, then, uh, or uh, don't advertise the services that are listed in Section 528, then the disclaimer requirement doesn't apply at all. But if they then if, chose if they're rec- If they're, uh, as, as the hypothetical suggests, representing only big companies, they're probably not advertising uh, to the general public anyway. That, that may well be. Well, they may, they may have a website, Justice Scalia, but uh, big firms have to deal already with multifarious disclaimer requirements in every state where they practice, and firm websites often have a lengthy set of disclaimers, one, you know, one required by Texas and one required by New York and so on. This is something that, uh, that uh, multi-jurisdictional firms are, are already familiar with, and they, they provide these disclaimers without problem. You, you said that one of the um, aspects of this that makes it tolerable is that they're not limited to saying uh, we are debt uh, relief agencies, we help people file for bankruptcy. They can say anything else. But there's no screening, there's no uh, administrator that a law firm can go to and say, this is what I'm, this is what I think is substantially similar. Is it okay? That is true, Justice Ginsburg, and there is, of course, the safe harbor. Uh, for, by, by using this two-sentence statement, uh, the advertiser is certain that, uh, that there will be no problem. Uh, but I think that, that a, substantially, a substantially similar statement is a permissive standard, and if there were any constitutional doubt, it would be to resolve it in favor of flexibility in that, uh, in that regard. Thank you, Mr. Counsel. Justice. Uh, Mr. Brunstad, you have three minutes remaining. Thank you. Justice Ginsburg, your example about the woman who's in need of medical attention falls squarely within the statute. The lawyer would be prohibited from advising her to incur debt to get needed medical attention, and the government, um, in trying to articulate a way around that um, during the course of the argument, articulated no less than five different standards. The conduct would have to be fraudulent or unethical or abusive or criminal or improper. None of those are in the statute, and it's impossible to know which one. Um, Chief Justice Roberts, you're, you're absolutely right. What this, what this statute does is it basically is trying to interfere with the attorney-client relationship and even more so on the side of or pay an attorney. And, and Justice Breyer, here's how it works. The client comes to the, the prospective client comes to the lawyer and is in trouble and may not know whether the client has to file for bankruptcy or not. So there's a conversation that happens. And in that conversation, it may be decided that the best thing for the client to do is to file for bankruptcy. And, of course, the client will want to know, how am I going to pay for this? Well, there are two ways. One, the client can pay the attorney in full up front, or the attorney can take payment over time. However, this all happens before bankruptcy, so there's no involvement of the court at this point. If the attorney accepts payment over time, which many do, because it's very expensive to file for bankruptcy now, and most debtors don't have the wherewithal, the attorney by saying, I take payment over time, and the debtor accepting that, 
the debtor would be incurring debt in contemplation of bankruptcy, incurring debt to the attorney. The attorney would be prescribed under the statute from actually giving that particular so advice. What the attorney says is, here's what we'll do. When we file for bankruptcy, I will ask the court to approve my own fees as something that is continuing after bankruptcy. Exactly. And he says, this is what they'll be. So what's the harm? Because Since that's what he has to do, because of making him tell his client that that's what he has to do. Because you can't advise the client in, it, in advance to incur that. No, you, can, you, you can't? This Unfit prevents that. you from saying, what I'm going to do is ask the bankruptcy judge to approve what I just said. Well, that has to happen anyway under Section I, I, Of course. And so what's wrong with the law that tells the lawyer that's what he has to tell the client? Because there, in that situation, you'd be advising the client to incur the debt. Remember, it's the advising the client to incur the debt, not the actual incurrence of the debt. I, I don't read the, uh, the, the hypothetical that you've given as coming within the statute. I think when it, when it means incur debt to pay an attorney, I don't think it means debt to the attorney. You're not worried about the attorney cheating himself. Well, except debt. Making himself an, an additional creditor, that's ridiculous. But debt is you What it talks about is, is inducing the client to, to borrow money from somebody else to pay the attorney. And, you know, and that seems to me perfectly reasonable. And, and I, I think it includes both, Justice Scalia. For example, you couldn't advise your client to borrow $1,000 from your mother. That's and you, right. co you couldn't, and you also, I think, advise a client to basically borrow the money from you, the attorney. You're extending services on credit. Well, That's why? incurring a debt. Why would you worry about the attorney, uh, you know, hurting himself? Because the statute, it, it's at least sense. unclear, Justice Scalia, and that is the heart of the problem. It's I very unclear. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.